Today our scripture reading will be from Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 32, going through chapter 10, verse 29. Now it came about that as Peter was traveling through all those parts, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it came about at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, Do not delay to come to us. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room. And with all the widows stood beside him weeping, and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came about that he stayed there many days in Joppa with a certain tanner, Simon. Now there was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God who had just come into him, and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze upon him, and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a certain tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had departed, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were in constant attendance upon him. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he beheld the sky opened up and a certain object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had sent, been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. 
And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but arise, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. And Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. And so he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when it came about that time, Peter entered, and Cornelius met him, and fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered, and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner, or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. And so I ask for what reason you have sent for me. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you that you were always working and you were working ahead of your followers. You were preparing the way for them to go and do the things that you had for them to do. Lord, uh, we thank you for... Uh, the healings. We thank you for the, the full inclusion of uh, the Gentile people, which most of us are, Lord. Thank you that we all together, uh, Jew and Gentile, get to come before your throne and worship you. Lord, give us worshipful hearts today as we hear this message. Um, bless, bless our ears and hearts to hear it. Lord, bless Tom's words as he speaks it. Uh, may your truth go forth powerfully today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. My title this morning is, uh, is Peter Gets a Divine Curveball. But before we, before we consider the, the Holy Spirit's masterful curveball that he threw at Peter, we need to first understand a bit of a curveball that he has sent our way in this section of the book of Acts. We saw last time in chapter 9, verses 1 through 31, the miraculous God-caused conversion of Saul, whom we know as the Apostle Paul, a man who had been arguably the most militant enemy of Christ and of the people of Christ of, who lived in that era. And God turned his heart mightily, powerfully, miraculously, so that he became, uh, um, as we will see as we proceed through this book, he became a very mightily used ambassador of Christ. But now, in chapters 13 to 28, or, or I should also, I should say, all of chapters 13 to 28 will be about what the Holy Spirit then accomplishes through the Apostle Paul. Um, that's, that's 16 chapters that focus on how the Spirit used the Apostle Paul to plant churches all throughout the Roman Empire in mostly Gentile communities. So why, why is it that just... As Luke has begun laying out the work of the Spirit through Paul, does he throw in three and a half chapters about Peter right after Paul's conversion? Why would Luke arrange this book that way? 
Well, I believe it has everything to do with the fact that Jesus is about, Jesus has called Paul to be his ambassador to the Gentile communities all over the empire. Before Paul's ministry among those Gentile communities gets underway, God is going to use Peter to prepare the nearly all Jewish church that existed at this point for the the amazing new reality that Christ intends to build his church by making Jews and Gentiles one in him. And I believe that's why this interlude about Peter is positioned right where it is in this book. It's very strategic. We see, I'll come back to that map, but in verses uh, 32 to 43, we see two healings, or actually a healing and a resurrection. And in the first one, which is the healing of Aeneas, Peter makes it very, very clear who is doing the healing. He says, <laughs> when, he, when he calls Aeneas, uh, he, when he speaks to him, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. Now, we know that Aeneas was not a teenager because as soon as he was commanded to arise and make his bed, he did so immediately. That in itself would have been a miracle had he been a teenager. But this is a, this is a world-class miracle. Actually, it's a heaven-class miracle. In verse 35, Peter gives his progress report, and he talks about how the gospel then spread all around this, this region, uh, the city and the region where, where Aeneas lived. Then there's a second healing, and that's in verses 36 to 43. And this one is a resurrection from the dead that the Spirit works through the Apostle Peter. We see in uh, kind of a a little bit of a profile, a very brief character description about who this woman is. In the second half of verse 36, it says, This woman, Tabitha, was abounding in deeds of kindness and almsgiving, which she continually did. Now, some of your versions say kindness and charity, but the word that's translated charity there is, is the word for almsgiving, and it'll be this, it's the same word we're about to see applied to Cornelius in the next chapter. Uh, alms were gifts not given through the church or given, if you were a Jew, through the synagogue. They were given directly, generally given directly by one person to a more needful person uh, to care for, for, for the needs of that other person. Other person. Uh, so when you see in this in this passage that Luke describes how the widows in that community, in Tapitha's community, had all these tunics and garments that they were showing to Peter when Peter came, when he was summoned and he came to this location where where Tapitha was lying dead in an upper room. Uh, the widows were showing off all these garments. Well, those garments they had not bought those garments from Tabitha. They had been given to them by Tabitha. She had made them and given, to the, given these to the widows because this is a woman who cared about the things that mattered to God. This is the kind of woman that we, we love to see in any local church because she was all about, uh, about loving other people the way she had been loved by Christ. And, um, and so 
this, this character description of, of Tabitha explains why there were all these mourners, all these women weeping at, uh, at her bedside as she lay there. Now, I want to point out that if we exclude, if we exclude the many who came up out of the tombs on the day that Jesus was crucified, uh, a very sort of a quick temporary resurrection of a large number of people, there are only five instances in the New Testament in which someone was raised from the dead. Aside from that event, only five instances. Three of those were those resurrections were performed by Jesus directly, uh, although in all cases, Jesus was, as in his humanity, was acting in dependence on the Holy Spirit uh, in all of the miraculous works that he did. But the first of Jesus' resurrections was the daughter of Jairus in Mark chapter 5, and then the widow's son in Luke 7, and finally the raising of Lazarus in John 11. Aside from those three resurrections, there are only two other instances in the entire New Testament in which a person was raised from the dead. One of those was the one in this passage, Peter being used by the Spirit to raise Tabitha from the dead. The other one is Paul in Acts chapter 20, the resurrection of the teenage boy, Eutychus, which is the only time anyone actually ever died when a sermon went too long. Remember that. Remember that. You probably won't die. This, this simple accounting puts Peter in a very rarefied company. Just Jesus and Paul, the only other two men, one the perfect God-man, who had ever raised anyone from the dead in, the New, Test in New Testament times that we know about. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but that are recorded in Scripture. Now, there are a couple of very noticeable parallels between Jesus' raising of Jairus' daughter uh, and Peter's raising by the spirit of Tabitha. In both episodes, the mourners who were gathered and were weeping at the bedside of the deceased person are sent out of the room, and the verb that's used for sent out is exactly the same in both Mark 5 and in this passage. Another thing that's very intriguing to me is that back in Mark 5, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, he spoke the word Talitha arise. Talitha was Aramaic for little girl, okay? Talitha arise. Here, Peter says, Tabitha arise. Now, there's a different Greek verb used here, but but that's because Luke wrote in Greek, but Peter spoke in Aramaic. And so when Peter declared this, when he made this statement, Tabitha, arise, there would have been exactly one letter different in that command than in Jesus' command to the daughter of Jairus. And if you think that's insignificant, Derek Thomas points out in his commentary that there are a few ancient copies of Mark chapter 5, the raising of Jairus' daughter, where the copyist made an error and he wrote, Tabitha, arise, instead of little girl, arise, because it's the same word. Now, my point in saying in that is that for Luke's Jewish audiences who heard this passage read as they had heard the Gospels read in the churches, it would have been impossible for them not to connect this healing with that healing. 
And there's one, mo one more connection that I want to point out, and that is with the resurrection uh, of Jesus. Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says that, that he presented himself alive during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. He presented himself alive by many compelling proofs. And here, Peter, after raising Tabitha, says he presented her alive. And it's the exact same construct in, in Greek. Why is that all important? Well, it's, I believe it's important because I am very convinced that what the Holy Spirit is up to here is he is, he is, he is demonstrating the credentials of Peter to speak and to act on behalf of Christ in all respects and with the full authority of the Lord Jesus. And that will be very, very important for what happens in the next few chapters. Peter's ministry at this point is hitting on all cylinders. There have been many, many converts through his preaching. The first day was 3,000, right? There have been healings of the same magnitude as, as the mightiest healings that were, that were displayed through Jesus. Peter is speaking and acting and doing miracles with the full authority of Christ. And Peter's understanding at this point of the scope and reach of the gospel, of of the, the target, if you will, of the gospel was this. The gospel, as far as he knew at this point, applied to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it included, to his surprise and that of the other disciples, the Samaritans, who were mixed-breed Jews. Okay, And then it also included, the gospel also included the occasional... Gentile proselyte who had converted to Judaism, but who embraced the entire Jewish system of worship and the Jewish dietary rules and everything else that made a Jew a Jew except for his physical lineage. But God was about to throw a curveball that would radically change Peter's understanding of the scope and the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the same would apply to pretty much everyone who had become a Christian up to that point. Peter's going to get a base hit in this morning's passage with that curveball, but it won't be until his next at-bat in the next couple of chapters that he actually gets a home run. We'll see that as we proceed next time. All right, after the two healings, this is where the curveball comes. Cornelius gets a vision in verses 1 through 8. I call this section in verses 1 through 16 double vision <laughs> because you've got Cornelius' vision in verses 1 through 8 and then Peter's vision in 9 through 16, almost exactly the same uh, number of words. If one thing stands out here as the, as the events of this chapter unfold, it is that the game is rigged. God is orchestrating every minute detail of these events. In the opening verses of chapter 10, Luke introduces us to this man, Cornelius. He tells us he's a Gentile military officer from an elite battalion of the Roman army, known as the, known as the Italian cohort. He tells us he's a centurion, that means a commander of at least 100 men, that number could vary some. 
And then he says he is a devout man, verse 2, one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Cornelius is to the Jews what Tapatha was to her fellow believers. Cornelius had a heart of great compassionate care for those that he considered to be the covenant people of God. Now, I want to explain, and this, this becomes super important, I want to explain what it means to be a proselyte and what it means to be a God-fearer. Sometimes those terms are synonymous in their usage in, uh, in the New Testament, but here there's a distinction that's happening and we need to understand it. A proselyte was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism hook, line, and sinker. A male proselyte had to be circumcised. He had to be a devoted observer, observer of all of the requirements of the law of Moses. That means he had to observe all of the required sacrifices. He had to do a pilgrimage three times a year to observe all three of the major annual festivals in Jerusalem. And he also had to observe every one of the very rigorous dietary restrictions that had been laid out back in Leviticus chapter 11 and had been practiced by Jews for all those generations. And indeed, he had to be that proselyte, Gentile proselyte, had to be a Jew in every respect except physical lineage, the lineage from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what then allowed him to come into the court of the Gentiles inside the tabernacle perimeter in the, in the tabernacle compound. The court of the Gentiles was, it was not the closest point that you could get to the presence of God if you were a Jew. It was a little bit on the outside, but it was within the tabernacle property, within the compound. And so you were able, as a proselyte, you were able to draw near to God and worship God together with other Jews. You would never have the same, you would never have the same prestige and the same status as one who was born a Jew. But, but you were able to come and worship. If you were not a full proselyte, a circumcised as a man, a circumcised proselyte, if you were not observant of all of these requirements, then you're just a Gentile. Even if you believe in Yahweh, you're just a Gentile. And you could not come into the temple compound. And if you want to know how seriously the Jews took that, look in Acts chapter 21, because in that chapter, they grab Paul and arrest him, and they're ready to kill him because they are asserting incorrectly that he brought Trophimus, a Gentile, inside the tabernacle compound. That was punishable by death. Now, this next part is exceedingly important. I hope you're tuned in here. Cornelius was a God-fearer, but he was not a proselyte. Cornelius was a friend of the Jews, but he was not a proselyte. How do I know that? Chapter 11, verse 3, when Peter goes back to his associates in Jerusalem, his Jewish Christian friends, they say, Peter, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And Peter doesn't contradict what they said at all. 
Bear this in mind. Cornelius is a God-fearer, a believer in Yahweh. He's not a proselyte. Now, God then proceeds to give a vision here to Cornelius. An angel appearing, we find in verse 30, appearing as a man in shining garments, instructs Cornelius to dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. That's verses 5 and 6. And then the angel tells the angel tells Cornelius where Peter can be found. Now, let me ask you, if you received notice that you were being required to meet with someone who represented the highest level of authority that existed over you, would you expect them to come to you? Or would you expect that you would have to come to them? I think the answer is obvious. But God does not tell Cornelius to go to Peter. Through his angelic representative, God instructs Cornelius to summon Peter to come to him. It's not because somebody died and they couldn't travel anymore. <laughs> this guy had authority. This guy had autonomy. He could have come. But that's not what happened. And we can be sure that this was as unexpected for Cornelius as it was for Peter. Both of these guys were scratching their head. And the reason for the unusual logistics here becomes very clear as Luke relates the events that happened the very next day. After Cornelius has his vision, then Peter gets a vision. And it's a, it is a stunner. The next day, while Cornelius' men are headed to Joppa to fetch Peter, Peter goes on a housetop to pray at the designated time for prayer. And just as his, this is the noontime basically, and just as his stomach tells him it's time for lunch, God puts Peter in a trance and proceeds to ruin his appetite. God, the Holy Spirit, provides this vision where a sheet comes down out of, out of the sky, and that sheet is filled with all kinds of swarming, creeping, crawly creatures. Animals that every Jew knew to be unclean, and that means they were absolutely forbidden to eat these critters. Unclean foods were not to be eaten by a Jew, and if, they, if the Jew did eat him, he was rendered very unclean. And an unclean Jew, an unclean person, was never allowed inside the, the perimeter of the temple grounds. He could not come and draw near to God and worship. Now, if someone knowingly ate unclean animals, that was, that was a super serious offense. And these dietary restrictions that are all, all back in Leviticus 11, they came from God, not from men. This isn't the tr tradition of men. God says to Peter, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, Peter, the guy who always tells you what he's thinking, he says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. God says to Peter, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. What God has, he doesn't say what is clean, no longer consider, he says what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Something has changed radically. And then God repeats the vision three times. And then finally the sheet goes back up into the sky and the vision is done. Now if you go back to Genesis chapter 41, verse 32, 
After Joseph interprets Pharaoh's two-act dream, Joseph says to Pharaoh, now as for the repeating of of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and that God will bring it about quickly. It is determined, that means it's certain, and God will bring it about quickly. Guys, the same thing applies here. This matter that God has just declared to Peter by means of this vision is settled. It is written in stone. It is determined by God. And God is about to give Peter a very direct application for the point of this vision very quickly. The Holy Spirit's timing here is pure genius. That happens with God a lot. Verse 17 and 18 says, Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, (laughs) the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was was staying there. The verses 17 to 29, really verses 24 to 29 of this chapter, I believe record Peter's aha moment. This is where Peter gets it. Verse 19 says, while Peter, I'm backing up a little bit, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. And then he says, arise, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. It's as if the Holy Spirit is saying, Peter, you want to know what that curveball of a vision is all about? Go answer the door. The word that the NASB translates misgivings in verse 20, it literally means distinctions, distinctions. Peter, accompany these men without distinctions. The Spirit is saying to Peter, go with these Gentile men just as readily as you went with the Jewish believers from Joppa who asked you to come to Tabitha after her death. Make no distinction. Back in John chapter 15, Jesus told his disciples the difference between a slave and a friend. Y'all remember that? A slave doesn't know what his master is up to. But a friend, a friend gets brought into the war room. He, He gets to see the battle plan. He gets to know what his master is doing. The Holy Spirit uses the immediacy of the soldier's arrival right on the heels of the thrice-repeated vision to open Peter's eyes to the reality that the vision he had just received that seemed to be about food was actually about people. God is in the process here of dramatically changing Peter's understanding of the scope and the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first step in that re-education of Peter is to make Peter aware that he and all the other Jews who had come to faith in Jesus up to that point are no longer to consider Gentiles to be unclean. And the same, of course, will apply to all other Jews that come to faith. They are no longer to consider Gentiles to be unclean. 
the Holy Spirit opens up Peter's eyes to one of the most foundational truths about God's plan of redemption for sinners, and that is that all mankind is on the same playing field. I need to take a moment to point out something that many of us New Testament saints tend to misunderstand about the dietary restrictions under the Old Testament law. The point of those restrictions was not about which foods are more or less healthful for people to eat than others. There has been an endless litany of articles and books written that try to make that point, and it simply doesn't hold up. In fact, none of the other, none of the other attempted explanations for the dietary restrictions hold up consistently for all of the animals that are excluded except one. The point of all those restrictions is about making a separation between God's covenant people and all other people on earth. In biblical times, dining together was part and parcel of being together, of doing life together. You could not do one without doing the other. And the very specific dietary prohibitions in Leviticus 11 made it impossible for Israelites to do life with pagans. Impossible. Alan Ross, who was the seminary prof that most profoundly influenced my, my own understanding of how to approach God's Word and understand it, had this to say about the powerful effectiveness of this dietary distinction he said, nothing more effectual could be devised to keep one people distinct from another. It causes the difference between them to be ever-present to the mind, touching as it does upon so many points of social and everyday contact. And it is there, therefore far more efficient in its results as a rule of distinction than any difference in doctrine, worship, or morals which men could entertain. See, in a very real sense, the dietary restrictions in, Mo in the law of Moses were never actually about food. They were always about people. Israel never seemed to get that. After putting Cornelius's men up at his place overnight, Peter arises the next morning and he accompanies them to Caesarea. Uh, it's about a day's journey. Let me bounce back up to the... Sorry, I got too far from the map. There we go. Okay, here's Jerusalem, here's Joppa, where Peter, Peter was when he was summoned by these guys, and here's Caesarea, a coastal town. It's actually where the, where the uh, Roman, the highest Roman officials tended to put their, their headquarters in Palestine. So after a day's journey from Joppa to Caesarea, they arrive, and as Peter enters the house, Cornelius falls at Peter's feet and he worships him. But Peter grabs Cornelius and pulls him up by the arm and he says, Stand up! I too am just a man. That, of course, is super important. There's this religion that's been created over the, the notion that the descendants of Peter are so special that you've got to bow down and kiss their feet or kiss the ring on their hand. You think Peter would have put up with that? Not for a second. When it comes to the worthiness of human beings in the spiritual household of God, there are only two categories, Jesus 
and everyone else. He is worthy. We're not. And the only worthiness that you or I will ever have in the presence of God is his worthiness. Any man who represents himself as more deserving of your attention, affection, or submission than, than you are of his is a fake. And by the way, when you and I sin, it's not the other person's character that we violate. It's God's character that we violate. David talks about that in Psalm 51 very clearly. When Peter came into Cornelius' house, he found many people assembled. Peter's words to that group of assembled Gentiles in verses 28 and 29 must have stunned them as much as it stunned the man who spoke them. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Now, that feels like something of a stretch, and I kind of wrestled with whether that really is legit from the law. But what I realize is, is if, if you're talking about an uncircumcised Gentile, it's not very far. That's not very far from what the law actually does stipulate. And, that, and the reason for that was, again, to keep Israel separate from pagans. But bear with me. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. And that's why I came without raising any objection when I was sent for. And so I ask, for what reason you have sent for me? Isn't that great? By the time you get here to verse 29, which is the last verse we're going to look at this morning, Peter still doesn't know why this is happening. He doesn't know the end game. But there's one thing he does know, and he knows it and he declares it with crystal clarity, and that is that he cannot declare any human being to be unclean. The one thing he knew very clearly is that he was not violating the will of God by going to the home of a Gentile and accepting that Gentile's hospitality, including his food. God had commanded Peter to do so, and he had made it clear this was not a one-off. This was a whole new paradigm. Notice that, again, that Peter says absolutely nothing in verses 27 to 29 about food. In fact, it goes way beyond the matter of eating when he says, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Peter gets it. And next week, we're going to see how profoundly this impacts the gospel. And that next step is unavoidable in light of what God has already shown Peter here. But this morning, we're going to stop there in the passage, and we're going to just very briefly consider some of the ramifications here. As a child of God, I can never consider any fellow human being to be any more worthy in the sight of God than I am nor can I consider any human being to be any less worthy in the sight of God than I am. The simple reality is that we are all entirely unworthy in the sight of God until we are covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. It's the only way it happens. And that means there is no place in the heart of a child of God for racial bigotry, 
socioeconomic bigotry, educational bigotry, or any other kind of bigotry. More than that, there is no place in the heart of a child of God for any notion of any superiority of any kind over another human being, ever. That other guy's sins might look, worse, might look different than mine, but in the eyes of God, the debt is infinite in both cases. And you know what happens when you compare an infinite debt with another infinite debt and you try to do the math? You can't. Infinite is infinite. And that's the measure of our debt to our perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God. Every single person, every single person. The Jews habitually assumed that God's call to them to be a distinct people, separate from the pagan nations, set apart to him, even through their dietary restrictions, they were under the assumption that that meant that they deserved a special place in God's favor. That was never right. The call to avoid association with worshipers of idols was never because the Israelites were more godly or less prone to idolatry than the pagans. If you don't believe that, just read the Old Testament. <laughs> See, if they had been, if they had been more godly and less prone to idolatry, forced separation would not have been necessary. If Israel had been inherently holy, a nation of people whose hearts were sold out to the one true God, then the most expeditious way for, the, for them to impact the pagan nations for Yahweh would have been to let them freely associate with Gentiles. Now that Jesus has come and lived a sinless life that showed us the truth about the standard of righteousness that God actually requires of every human being, now that he has died in our place and been raised from the dead and has ascended back to his rightful glory at the right hand of his Father, now that we know the whole truth about us and about him, <laughs> we know that we cannot compare people to people. We can't compare ourselves to anyone and expect that one is going to come out better than the other in the sight of God. It is only the righteousness of Christ that qualifies us to stand in the presence of God. We know that until God gives us new hearts and a new life, we're on the same playing field as every other human being. We all, whether Jew or Gentile, whether Western or Eastern or Middle Eastern, whether white or black or brown or yellow or red, until Jesus gives us new hearts and new life in him, we are all unclean, unholy, having no hope, and without God in the world. So the whole point of God telling Peter not to call another man unclean is simply that he's not qualified to because he's unclean too, except for Christ, except for Christ. Are you with me? This marvelous and transforming truth destroys every distinction that you and I are so prone to make between ourselves and others. I never get to claim the moral high ground compared to another sinner. I never get to claim any kind of superiority in regard to another person. I never get to refuse to associate with or eat with another human being because of any perceived distinction between me and that other person. 
What would our lives be like if we actually lived this out, guys? As our friend Nate Bramson always said, what if God really means what he says? This is revolutionary. You will not find this mindset in any culture devised by man, in any philosophy devised by man, in any religion devised by man. Only God will tell you this. You and I are all equally condemned in the sight of our holy God until Jesus saves us and clothes us in his righteousness. And so there is nobody on this earth that we, should, that we should hold back from sharing this message with. And that's what Peter in the next chapter is going to discover. He's going to discover that God intends to include Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free man, people of every tongue and tribe and nation over the entire face of the earth. And he's going to take all of those people and he's going to make them one new man in Jesus alone. Loving Father, thank you. This is extraordinary. This is revolutionary. This is magnificent. We thank you, Father, for, for the beautiful clarity of your word. We thank you for the miraculous work of your spirit in the hearts of people who are reluctant, who are hesitant, <laughs> that's understating it, to, to see as you see to see ourselves as you see. But Father, we thank you that you have held nothing back. We thank you, Lord, that, that we who, who know the reality of our alienation from you because of our sin, that we in this room who trust in Jesus Christ also get to know that it is forever well with our souls and that we have an inheritance laid up for us in glory in your presence in the place that Jesus went to prepare for us where we will spend all eternity together with each other before the perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God where we will stand spotless and blameless in your presence. Father, use us to proclaim this truth to as many people as we have breath to proclaim it to. Thank you for that assignment. Thank you for the Spirit who enables us. Father, never relent in, in making that calling very clear to us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.